Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. You're listening to The Cultured Bumpkin, a literature podcast with Jake Phillips, where we present audiobook quality readings of the classics for your enjoyment. Thank you for stopping by. And remember, just because you're a bumpkin doesn't mean you can't be cultured. Hello and welcome to The Cultured Bumpkin. I'm Jake. Today we're going to uh, read an author that I have never read on this show before. We're nearly 300 episodes in, and we have never featured H.P. Lovecraft. Now, Lovecraft's writing style is distinctive and has left an indelible mark on the world of horror literature. His works were primarily uh, produced in the early 20th century and are characterized by uh, different key elements, like uh, cosmic horror, you know, sort of a, um, uh, some of these forces are ancient and godlike, defy human understanding, um, archaic language, so he has a huge vocabulary, the atmosphere and mood, and he really is good at creating a, sort of an oppressive, you know, atmosphere, even though there's nothing horrifying going on, there's just a sense of foreboding. He's really good at that. In this particular one that we'll introduce in a moment, he references Edgar Allan Poe, which is very interesting. If you like Poe, I think you'll like Lovecraft. If you don't like Poe, you probably won't like Lovecraft, here nor there. Um, One of his first-person narration, which is also very much like Edgar Allan Poe, he is talking you through it as it happens or telling you about it later. Um, his uh, cosmic descriptions is one of his, his hallmarks of his writing. It often includes vivid and evocative descriptions of the alien, you know, uh, cosmic, otherworldly entities. And in, in, and in that way, he's kind of a, almost a science fiction author uh, to some, you know, at the early, early science fiction, you might say. Um, sort of a, like Jules Verne would be a great example from the 19th century of a science fiction writer that was really a pioneer ahead of his time in a lot of ways. Um, he's kind of a, a world builder in his stories. So he created an interconnected mythos called uh, the uh, Cthulhu mythos or the uh, Cthulhu mythos, however you pronounce it. Some people have heard both ways. I think you just pick one. Um, he frequently referenced the same locations and deities and um, you know forbidden tomes across his stories, and it really contributed to a sense of like a shared universe, right? So that was a, one of his features. Um, fear of the unknown. One of the things that he believed was that fear was the uh, or, or the fear of the unknown is the most powerful fear of all. So that's what he would write about. And that's what gives his stories some real foreboding. Um, there's subtle horror that he often uses that is um, 
it's, it has a psychological aspect to it. And it kind of fills your imagination with things that he didn't really tell you. He almost lets your mind think of it. Uh, it's pretty, pretty interesting how he does it. Um, and then there's some stuff, not in this one, but in some of his works that are would be considered like derogatory toward other people and people groups now. So just if you do read his stuff, just know that this is not an endorsement of everything he wrote, obviously, but just a, a kind of a presentation of it. Uh, but in this one, I don't, um, this one doesn't have anything derogatory towards uh, other people groups uh, that I can tell. So um, the story that we're going to read today is one called Dagon. Now, it's a short story, um, one of his shortest, I believe. And it's by H.P. Lovecraft, of course. And he is just, um, you know, it's, it's, it's weird cosmic horror fiction. But I think it's good to, to know, uh, to hear, to read some of his stuff so you'll be familiar and be a cultured bumpkin. All right, the story was written in 1917. And it was published for the first time in 1919, right after the, um, the uh, First World War. And in this story, he mentions like uh, German, the German Navy. Um, so it was set just, it was set in World War I, so I suppose that's where it came from. So it's one of Lovecraft's early works, and it's notable for introducing readers to some of the themes and elements that would later become pretty central uh, in his writings. And the story is, is presented as the diary of an unnamed narrator. And uh, he describes an otherworldly experience he had while exploring a remote and desolate region of the South Pacific after he was shipwrecked. And he recounts uh, discovering the existence of an ancient aquatic deity called Dagon, a monstrous fish-like creature. And it's interesting that he even references the book of 1 Samuel in the Bible where the ancient Philistines worshipped a fish god called Dagon. Um, the narrator describes the encounter with the Dagon cult, which worships this sea deity, and how he inadvertently becomes part of their rituals. Um, it, Dagon is considered uh, a seminal work in Lovecraft's bibliography and reflects many of the themes and motifs that he would continue to develop in his later, more famous stories, such as The Call of the Cthulhu. It's a good starting point for readers if you're just starting, uh, in, if this is your first Lovecraft. Uh, and now, if you've heard Lovecraft, I hope that you'll hear this and enjoy it. Oh, Jake's presentation of it was great, and I enjoyed it. I hope, I hope that's how it goes. If this is your first time, I hope that you'll say, uh, this is a good starting point, and, and you'll know whether you uh, like or dislike this kind of writing. And uh, it's a good starting point for readers who are interested in sort of dipping a toe into the Lovecraft uh, waters, so to speak. And it, it really has a lasting impact on the horror genre for later uh, writers that came later on. So, anyway, without further ado, Dagon by H.P. Lovecraft. I am writing this under an appreciable mental strain, since by tonight I shall be no more. Penniless, and at the end of my supply of the drug which alone makes life endurable, I can bear the torture no longer, and shall cast myself from this garret window 
into the squalid street below. Do not think from my slavery to morphine that I am a weakling or a degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, though never fully realize, why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell a victim to the German sea raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made a legitimate prize, whilst we of her crew were treated with all the fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners. So liberal indeed was the discipline of our captors, that five days after we were taken, I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself adrift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess vaguely by the sun and stars that I was somewhat south of the equator. Of the longitude, I knew nothing, and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship or to be cast on the shores of some habitable land. But neither ship nor land appeared, and I began to despair in my solitude upon the heaving vastness of unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know, for my slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I waked, it was to discover myself half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire which extended about me in monotonous undulations as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. Though one might well imagine that my first sensation would be of wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation of scenery, I was in reality more horrified than astonished, and there was in the air and in the rotting soil a a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish and other less desirable things which I saw protruding from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing and nothing in sight save a vast reach of black slime. Yet the very completeness of the stillness and the homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from a sky which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized that only one theory could explain my position. Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have thrown me to the surface, exposing regions which for innumerable millions of years had lain hidden under unfathomable watery depths. 
So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath me that I could not detect the faintest noise of the surging ocean, strain my ears as I might. Nor were there any sea-fowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours I sat thinking or brooding in the boat, which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for traveling purposes in a short time. That night I slept but little, and the next day I made for myself a pack containing food and water, preparatory to an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of the fish was maddening. But I was too much concerned with graver things to mind so slight an evil and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily westward, guided by a faraway hummock which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. That night I encamped and on the following day still traveled toward the hummock, though that object seemed scarcely nearer than when I first espied it. By the fourth evening, I attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it appeared from a distance. An intervening valley set it out in sharper relief from the general surface. Too weary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night, but ere the waning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again, and in the glow of the moon I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy. Indeed, I now felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset. Picking up my pack, I started for the crest of the eminence. I have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me, but I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side into an immeasurable pit or canyon whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to illumine. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. Through my terror ran curious reminiscences of paradise lost and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky, I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easy footholds for a descent, whilst, after a drop of a few hundred feet, the declivity became very gradual. Urged on by an impulse which I cannot definitely analyze, I scrambled with difficulty down the rock and stood on the gentler slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian deeps where no light had yet penetrated. All at once my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope which rose steeply about a hundred yards ahead of me. 
an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself, but I was conscious of a distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with sensations I cannot express, for despite its enormous magnitude and its position in an abyss which had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith whose massive bulk had known the workmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of the scientist's or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near the zenith, shone weirdly and vividly above the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions and almost lapping my feet as I stood on the slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the base of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surface I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphics unknown to me and unlike anything I had ever seen in books, consisting for the most part of conventional aquatic symbols such as fishes, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Several characters obviously represented marine things which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I had observed on the ocean-risen plain. It was the pictorial carving, however, that did most to hold me spellbound. Plainly visible across the intervening water on account of their enormous size were an array of bas-reliefs whose subjects would have excited the envy of Adore. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shown disporting like fishes in the waters of some marine grotto or paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. Of their faces and forms I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a Poe or a Bulwer were damnably human in general outline despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes, and other features less pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, they seemed to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale represented as but little larger than himself. I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fishing or seafaring. But in a moment decided they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fishing or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendant had perished eras before the first ancestor of the Piltdown or Neanderthal man was born. Awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into the past beyond the conception of the most daring anthropologist, I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel before me. Then, suddenly, I saw it.
with only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface, a thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast, polyphemus-like, and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms, and while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds, I think I went mad then. Of my frantic ascent of the slope and cliff and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remember little. I believe I sang a great deal and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing... I have distinct recollections of a great storm sometime after I reached the boat. At any rate, I know that I heard peals of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods. When I came out of the shadows, I was in a San Francisco hospital, brought thither by the captain of the American ship which had picked up my boat in mid-ocean. In my delirium, I had said much, but found that my words had been given scant attention. Of any land upheaval in the Pacific, my rescuers knew nothing, nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe. Once I sought out a celebrated ethnologist and amused him with, and amused him with peculiar questions regarding the ancient Philistine legend of Dagon, the fish god, but soon perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It is at night especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug has given only transient surcease and has drawn me into its clutches as a hopeless slave. So, now I am to end it all. Having written a full account for the information or the contemptuous amusement of my fellow men, Often I ask myself if it could not have all been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fever as I lay sunstricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man-of-war. This I ask myself, but ever does there come before me a hideously vivid vision in reply. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likenesses on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the billows to drag down in their reeking talons the remnants of puny, war-exhausted mankind of a day when the land shall sink and the dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst universal pandemonium. The end is near. I hear a noise at the door, as of some immense, slippery body lumbering against it. It shall not find me. God, that hand, the window... The window! Ay, ay, ay. There you have it. Day Gone by H.P. Lovecraft. If you've made it this far, I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope that you'll subscribe uh, if you haven't. Um, also, check out my YouTube. Link will be in the bio. Um, it'll be 
Um, I do a lot of live readings and I take requests if you catch me on the live uh, of, of poetry and, you know, excerpts from uh, books, sometimes short stories. And if you want to interact a little bit, I would love to see you over there on YouTube. Also, check out theculturedbumpkin.com for some pretty sweet uh, merch that I designed myself. I've, so far, I've got some uh, Shakespeare stuff, some Poe stuff, and some Jane Austen stuff. So if that sounds fun to you, you should check it out. Or just swing by and, uh, you know, uh, see the links to YouTube, Instagram, and uh, TikTok and things like that. Anyway, I really appreciate you listening. And just remember, just because you're a bumpkin doesn't mean you can't be cultured. You've been listening to The Cultured Bumpkin, a literature podcast with Jake Phillips. Thank you very much for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you enjoyed this, would you mind going and subscribing and leaving a nice review on whatever podcast podcast platform you heard this on? I would really appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.